Hi, this is Max with a quick note in post-production. Uh, just to say that the play we're going to discuss in this episode uh, deals with some sensitive topics. So if for any reason you don't want to listen to uh, us talk about domestic psychological abuse for an hour and a half, you may want to skip this one. Sorry about that. Um, hopefully next time we'll have something slightly happier to talk about. Okay, now the episode. Hello! And welcome back to the podcast that now has a name. We are Shaking the Spear. Yes. Uh, a friend of mine heard the name and immediately christened us the Come Town of Litcrit. Lovely. So, uh, yeah. Let's see if how, we live up to how, that. How wonderful. It's very fitting. I hate it, though. <laughs> so, yeah. In case the name didn't tip you off, uh, this is a podcast about William Shakespeare. We choose to believe it is the that? first such podcast. No one's ever talked about William Shakespeare before. No, he's very obscure. I've never heard of him. So... And that's why I'm on this podcast. It's kind of a, an unfortunate situation. Yeah, we're uh, all... Actually, that's that's not true. That's, that's not true. It's not true of you. It was a good bit. It was a bit. So we do one of the... My friend hasn't X'd before podcast, but it's Shakespeare. But my friend, Max, and we should introduce ourselves. Yes. I'm Margo. That, this, that's Max. We should absolutely introduce ourselves, yes. Um, um, we, we've done a little Shakespeare. We, we did Macbeth, and now we we're doing and it took, a and new it took play. almost four hours, and I'm hoping this won't. Oh, this won't. This is a much shorter play. Although, technically, we're doing two plays, kind of. Well, I'll talk about You're it. You're doing two plays. I'm doing two plays... I, basically, I'm giving you variants on the one play. Yeah, and How about that? Um, the play, just to start us off, is The Taming of the Shrew. Or but alternatively, also... The Taming of a Shrew. Thank you. I am American, so I may say a shrew, but it is a shrew. Um, so, uh, do you have any... In, did you have any impressions about this play going in, Max? Well, actually, I was about to... Uh... Since we mentioned the different variants, I yes. thought maybe this might be a good time to sort of briefly discuss uh, the diplomatics of this play and why. Because the thing about Macbeth, the only previous Shakespeare play we've done, is that only one text of it survives. Absolutely. As I understand it. And yes, only one text survives in the folio, and technically... That is also true of Taming of the Shrew. Although we believe it was written in about 1592, 1593, maybe 1591, there's some dispute. It's one of the earlier plays then, one of the earliest comedies. Uh, it only survives in the first folio, that is 1623, after the death of Shakespeare. Yes. Uh, we talked a little bit about this in the first episode, but uh, it, it, it'll get scattered throughout because it's important. Yeah. But this other text, The Taming of a Shrew, is from 1594. 
Now, that doesn't really mean anything. We don't actually know if that's the later text. As I was just alluding to, the Taming of, Taming of the Shrew was very popular in its day in the 1590s through uh, the 16 aughts, 1610s, 1620, yeah. even early 1620s, and only gets published in a form that survives anyway in 1623. So this play is probably from a couple of years earlier before it was printed, or not. It's unclear. Yeah, and... Uh... I mean, from the sound of that, it might be that Shakespeare wasn't wasn't the first. Well, that is very possible. I'm not saying I don't believe that, but I'm not saying I do believe that either. Mm. I'm going to be saying it's unclear a lot when I talk about this. Yeah. Because we just don't know. Yeah. Um, so, um, to start us off, uh, do we know who wrote The Taming of Ashru? We sure don't. No. Some people think it's Shakespeare. It doesn't read like Shakespeare to me. Some people think it's a parody of Kit Marlowe, and that sounds right, because there are sections that are just making fun of Marlovian uh, pretension. Like, he goes all off the rails. Yeah. Um, and there are bits of it that are like that. So someone suggested maybe Christopher Marlowe himself wrote it. That's ridiculous. That man <laughs> hated comedy. Um, so I have no idea, but it does. I do feel like it is a Marlovian parody. Yeah. What's interesting about this play is, in many respects, it is identical to The Taming of the Shrew, Shakespeare's play. Uh, but in many respects, it is not. There are some uh, sections where the dialogue is almost word for word the same. And there are scenes, and there's even a little subplot that doesn't exist anywhere else. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so, there's a, so there's a theory, which I'm not saying I subscribe to, but I see where people are coming from with it, that both Shakespeare's play and this play are takes on what you might call an Ur-Shrew, a, a, a first play that no longer Yeah, that's survives. what I was thinking, that maybe Shakespeare was working from an, a previous play as well. Yeah, and, and the author of this text, which may actually have been Shakespeare, though I don't buy it, but, you know, maybe it's a, a very corrupt text of, of Shakespeare play. I don't know. Again, I don't buy it. But who knows? It's not impossible. Yeah. Uh, I could honestly believe it. It just doesn't seem likely to me. Um, I think it's most po po probable Excuse me, that uh, this is another play by someone parodying Christopher Marlowe, and they are both working from some lost first text. And you, I mean, you do not need to look very hard in European literature to find stories about a shrew being tamed. Yeah. Um, I mean... It's almost like Western culture... Well, I'm going to say Western culture. Most cultures, historically, have been fairly misogynistic. How about that? Yeah. Um, so, for, so the shrew plot, I, my notes say, very common in European literature, mm -hmm. and boy howdy it is. Yeah. Uh, uh, probably the earliest one we can easily accept Shakespeare's knowing. Uh, apparently, Noah's wife, Per Chaucer, was a shrew. Not sure where he gets that. There's very little information on her in the book of Genesis. She doesn't have a name. Yeah. Um, but that's cool. Uh, there's a Lot's ballad from... Lot's wife, of from... course, was the original Salt Bay. Oh my god. No. There... This is entirely irrelevant, but they did find some evidence of this big city in the ancient Near East uh, that got destroyed by, like, an asteroid or something. And if you're a Canaanite shepherd in, like, 2000, 3000 BC... I cannot criticize you for thinking that was God. Yeah. No, People today uh, would think that. Yeah. Anyway, 
Um, there's a ballad from like the 1570s, 1580s about the taming of a shrew, which has some similarities to the plots of both these plays. That could be a source, although I'm not sure if I buy it. Mm. Um, I don't think he... I, Shakespeare did not need to look very hard to figure out uh, a play about the taming of a shrew. No. And the Bianca Lucentio plot, which is the subplot and not very interesting, is from the Italian poet Ariosto, uh, who wrote it in uh, his text Il Sopositi, um, and so that was what, translated the betrothed? by. Uh, that's the Lucentio Bianca thing about them uh, disguising themselves no, no, to I mean, as like tutors. Yeah, the the title of the play mm. or the title of the poem. Oh, it's a play actually called Isopositi, uh, which George Gascoigne translated as "The Supposes" of in 1573. Yeah, and the induction, which we will talk a little bit about, which is the Christopher Sly yeah. plot, comes comes from a jest book by a guy called Richard Edwards, who was a fairly well-known person of that time in the literary sphere. Um, the Christopher Sly plot is really weird, and it usually gets cut for performance. We can talk a little bit about performance history. Yeah, I... yeah. Uh, basically, we'll, talk, we'll end up talking about this as we go through the plot more quickly than we did last time. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a bit in the beginning where a drunkard is taken up from the ground and gaslit into thinking he's a lord and then he is presented the play that is the taming of a uh, or the shrew and that's yeah. the like the and frame that's, narrative uh, that's not the only time gaslighting occurs in this play no i mean it definitely feels like a theme that you can stress if you want yeah because that's i mean this is one of the most one of the strangest aspects of this play to me is the introduction. Yeah, I don't know what to make of it either. It's... Uh, I wish I did. I mean, it would be one thing to have that set up, that this is um, a, a beggar who is set up to pretend he's a lord, and then they play a play to amuse him. If we ever saw him again. Yeah, and well, in, the thing about us... In, in Shakespeare's text, we only see him again very, very briefly. And then he, like, falls and asleep or something. And I think that's... I'm not sure if that's the first or second act, but it's very early still. Absolutely. Uh, in The Taming of Ushru, he's not in it a lot, but he does show up from time to time. And when we get there in equivalent points in Shakespeare's text, I'll make a mention of when he says, Hey, you know, what's happening here? Uh, and then there's closure with him in Ushru. Hey, what's up? It's your boy Christopher Sly again! Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I, which, I don't think Usher is a better play, but it is a more complete play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I note also that uh, the the first folio text refers to him in a couple of places as Christofero Sly. Which I think yeah, is very Italian funny. I really sometimes. enjoy that thing of um, Latinizing English forenames and then leaving the surname as is. It's very funny. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, it's very good. Actually, that's There's... that's uh, because I imagine we will end up talking a fair bit about Shakespeare's relation to Italy uh, in this episode, or lack thereof. Yes, yeah. um, and it's kind of interesting because uh, Italian is one of the last languages in Europe to stop doing that. Really, to stop I translating all foreign names into Italian. So in uh, in Milan, at least, you will get roads with names like. Viale Guglielmo Shakespeare, for instance. Or Viale... I'm shaking... 
You can't see this audio medium, but I'm shaking my yeah, head. Yeah, or v- Viale Giorgio Washington is another one. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, there, in, in Ushru, there's a bit where he calls himself Don Cristovari. <laughs> uh, in two words, which I really like. Don uh, Cristovari. Exactly. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. uh, it's really fun. Um, yeah, so see. we have that... Uh, we've kind of already sneakily begun the plot summary here. We have um, the opening yeah, I, with I guess... Christopher Sly, who is led to pretend, led, led to believe he is a lord. Yeah, we op- we have and this, the, the I ro- mean, we do have this universal, universal scene of a drunk guy being kicked out of an English pub because it's past closing time. Yeah. Uh, which will never change. I'm fairly sure yeah. the Anglo-Saxons had that. TV tropes would call it older than steam. Pretty much. Yeah, so the Lord finds him. There's. Did you note the hound discourse? There's talk about these dogs that we never see. Uh, very vaguely. They argue about like, oh no, my hunt. This hunting dog is better than that one. Like, I don't understand. I'm so confused. This is one of those uh, things that I'm starting to think may be an extremely specific topical satire. I honestly wouldn't be surprised. Um, Something that would have made sense to audiences at the time, but which is completely I wouldn't be surprised to hear that, but I, but I don't know if that's true. No. Uh, we have no, a I'm bit speculating where we have, some, wildly here. we have some players show up. That's always fun to have actors in a Shakespeare play. Yeah. In Ushru, there's a bit where the actors are like, uh, we need some, um, some vinegar and some mutton. Yeah, that's for the play. <laughs> and, uh, and you have to respect the, the, the hustle. Lord, and yeah, and the Lord's like, pretty sure you just want dinner, but that's fine. Here you go. Uh, it's great. I love it. I ex- I, I respect the hustle. Rough, yeah. uh, there's a really weird bit where the Lord thinks it would be funny to dress his page Bartholomew as a woman and tell Oh yeah, and tell Sly, him that's his wife. Yeah, and then uh, when Sly naturally wants to have sex with his wife to just like make an excuse, that's weird. Yeah. I, I don't get it. Um, Chasers, also older than Steam. Oh no, I hate it here. Thanks. Uh, my notes for 1-2, which is the second scene of the induction, are Sly gaslit some more, told to watch the play, and that feels fairly accurate. Yeah, that's, that, that about sums it up, yeah. Um, so, and what is the play? What is the play? Why? It is the taming of the shrew. We open in Italia. Prego. Mamma mia! Okay. Chris Pratt now that as we, Mario. Now that we've that been cancelled. Be justice for Captain Lou. Now that we've been cancelled. <laughs> the scene is, in fact, the city of Padua. Which I feel fairly sure Shakespeare knew nothing about. Yeah, I was about to say. Do we want to maybe mention... Like, briefly oh. go into... Just like the previous time we talked about why Shakespeare would write a Scottish play, maybe we should talk about why Shakespeare set so many of his comedies in Italy. Why, why do you think he set so many of his plays in Italy? <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I'm very confused about this. Uh, t- I don't have, like, an overarching clear answer. But it seems to me that the Elizabethans and the Jacobeans were really interested by Italy. Yeah. I mean, there's the Roman connection, of course. And there's the fact that they're, you know, evil Catholics. Um, and there's the fact that they have, in some ways, really developed political structures and also really kind of horrific political structures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
this is this is Machiavelli's homeland. Exactly. This is Machiavelli. I mean, the Elizabethans are constantly writing about Machiavelli. They find him fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, really I guess it, it kind really of ties into this that uh, a couple of generations before Shakespeare, Italy had a lot of very important literature. Uh, yeah, in, absolutely. In, in, like in the fiction talking... realm as well as things like Machiavelli. I mean, I was just talking about Ariosto, yeah. who uh, we don't really talk as much about today as we should, because his stuff didn't last as long. That's fair. Mm. But, I mean, in his day, he was seen as a rival to Dante, and not unfairly. Oh, yeah, I, actually, I heard a story. Apparently, this is an apocryphal story, but... I Oh, uh, I saw this. I loved yeah, it. Yeah, two Italian noblemen. I think this would have been in, like, the 17th century fighting a duel to the death over which of Dante and Ariosto was the better writer. And uh, the survivor of the duel admitted on his deathbed that he had never read either one. <laughs> I loved it. I love that so much. Uh, I will, by the way, in A Shrew, they are ambiguously Greek, but they also, some of them have names like Alfonso. Famous Greek name. Yes, I'll I know, some, right? I'll have some stuff to say about some of the names in this play. Yeah, some of the names are Greek. Some of the names are Alfonso and Kate. <laughs> yeah, famously Italian isn't... name, Kate. I, I, there's some discourse to be had about the fact that her name is Katarina that becomes the very English Kate, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, anyway, we're in Padua. Yes. Uh, Lucentio is here with his servant Tranio to study, but, like, not too hard, right? Mm, yeah. That classic um, uh, European low noble <laughs> rite of passage which is studying Absolutely. in big air quotes yeah uh in usher because of course one thing that shakespeare did get right about padua is that it is and um, especially at the time was an important university this is true uh no one i mean there actually is education in this play it's just like as a bit yeah yeah um, <laughs> yeah which i guess i which i guess is why like athens has the same idea which is what it is in usher uh in Vishru, it's Lucentio and his trusty servant, Tranio. Uh, in Ushru, it's not Lucentio. His name is Aurelius, which is not a Greek no, name, by the it way. very much is not. Uh, and his friend, the actually Greek named Polydor, who uh, is in love with a, a, a woman who has no direct equivalent in The Taming of the Shrew. Interesting. We should probably introduce our female characters now. Yes. Um, so there are really wanna, only don't two. Don't want to fail them. that Bechdel test. There are really only two of them, uh, and they are both. They are the daughters of one of Padua's local notables, uh, a man named ba named Baptista. Baptista Milinola, Yes, which is kind of an Ita which is an Italian name. So yeah, uh, they like John the Baptist. Yeah. I, I believe it. So uh, his daughters. Props to Shakespeare for that one. Oh, I, I was going to say, um, before we pass it up, uh, when Lucentio is introducing Padua to the audience, there's some evidence to be found that he is basically paraphrasing um, an Italian phrase book that everyone had at the time. <laughs> yes, Padua, the city of many hovercraft filled with eels. <laughs> Pretty much. It's very, like, the this uh, book by John Florio. There's a bit, apparently, where he goes into, like, Padua has these gardens and these walks and all this lovely stuff. Yeah. And Shakespeare basically paraphrases it, like, sentence per sentence for a little while. It's very funny to me. Yeah. Um, 
your your information comes from your like lonely planet phrase book. Yeah. Um anyway, so we have Baptista's daughters, Bianca and Katarina, yeah. who is the eponymous shrew. Yes. Uh, and we should we should name that uh, Katarina is the elder sister. Yes, and Katarina this is, important is the elder because sister. Baptista this is important. has some very spe- specific ideas about how his daughters are to get married. Specifically, yes. Katharina needs to be married first. Uh, for reference, by the way, a shrew is basically a woman with opinions. Yeah, more or less. This is uh, basic England, 1592. Basically a point where marriage is just patriarchy. But, like, uh, ideas about companionate marriage, kind of religious ideas too, you know, men and women are equal under God. Uh, that That's starting to arise. Yeah, Interestingly, it's... it's kind of a... Interestingly, it's kind of a Puritan thing. Uh, shout out? I don't know. Yeah. Critical support to Puritans. <laughs> um, I, I was... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting some... because you actually have kind of similar things that uh, in, in medieval Scandinavia, the... Um... We're not talking about Hamlet. No, but... <laughs> In, in medieval on, Scandinavia, when, when it was being Christianized, uh, ver- at least early on in the process, the church was very frequently... Um, the, the church very frequently acted in favor of uh, the woman's right to ch- choose huh. a husband based on love. Good for the Catholic church. I never thought Which I'd say that. Which is kind of interesting because we have this, especially in sort of revisionist history, there's, there is this idea of pre-Christian Scandinavia as a place where women had a lot of power. Yeah. And that was true in some respects, but very much not in others. Um, are you saying that people's views of pre-Christian Europe are greatly simplified and based on, like, weird 19th, early 20th century nationalism? Surely not. Hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, imagine that. Yeah. So what happened was marriage tended to just... You know, like in most of pre-modern Europe, it tended to be pretty much exclusively an arrangement between the two families. Sure. Uh, and the church didn't like that very much, hmm. apparently, at that point. Interesting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, that that's not really a narrative that continues as far as the time in which this play is set. No. As we're about to um, see. It's, uh, we, I, I was reading some stuff from one of my classes about gender politics in the 1590s. And I, I forget who it was. I can I'll look. I m- might look it up later, but I don't think it's that important. Basically, this guy was arguing that men should help out in the house more because uh, women aren't pulling their fair share otherwise, mm-hmm. uh, which is a wild take. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I don't really get it. <laughs> Basically, he thinks that women have a free ride on the backs of men, and that men therefore need to help out, or else like women are damned. Look. I don't get it. I think this uh, is. It's, I think, it's a I lot. think you're skipping ahead to Act Five. Yeah, you're not wrong. Oh, and and of course, 1592. There is a queen on the throne. Yes. Um, they are not. Uh, they are not worried about the uh, <laughs> double think of having queen on the throne and thinking women are, you know, objectively the cause of all that is wrong in the world. Because of course, heredity makes up for that. Yeah. Don't you know? Of course. No, no, no. If uh, it had to be a woman, better it be this one. Yeah, ba- I mean, that's essentially the logic. Yeah, it's cur- it's very cursed. I don't enjoy this. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have two daughters. Yes. Two daughters. Katarina Manola has to be married Has to be married before her lovely, obsequious 
younger sister, Bianca, whose name means white because that is how pure she is. Yes. And the play makes constant reference to her mildness. Yeah. Which is Get you a girl Which is not unexpected <laughs> for the time, but still kind of interesting. Um she's she's the kind of girl who would say, gee whiz. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I, I actually like Bianca, but uh I have a I have a reading of her. We'll talk about this as we go through. Oh, to be sure. Anyway, yes. Katarina has to be married before Bianca gets married. Yeah, which as is a the moment, problem because all of the men who come to call to the Manola house are interested in marrying Bianca. Yeah, because Katarina is a cursed shrew. Yes. Uh, we have, at this moment, we have two men interested in marrying Bianca. They are uh, the young fool Hortensio and the old fool Gremio, uh, who is described as a pantaloon, which is a arch- an archetype from Commedia dell'arte yeah. uh, of the foolish old man who gets in the way of the young heroine's happiness, which is what he is. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Lucentio falls in love with Bianca at first sight. Uh, it's not, I mean, it just happens. Don't worry about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is... Uh, and Baptiste is like, course. yeah, uh, but in the meantime, I want tutors for my younger daughter. Yeah. So, uh, Gremio and Hortensio decide to team up because, you know... Uh, bros before the hoes, etc. Du- dudes before shrewds. <laughs> there we go. Um, shrewds. And they decide. They just de- <laughs> no. <laughs> they decide to get their mutual friend. Well, Hortensio's friend Petruchio. That might be an episode title, actually. Shrews rock. I hate it. I actually no. I don't. I love it. <laughs> they decide to get their friend Petruchio, who they know to be a very interesting fella, mm-hmm. to to woo Kate and take her out of the uh, the running so that they can um, compete for Bianca on equal terms. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Then we have, and so to, to get in, to, to get to see Bianca privately, Tranio uh, advises, Tranio goes along with Lucentio's plan to disguise himself as a tutor and he tells his other servant, Biondello, that this is a good do- good idea because Lucentio has killed a man. That never comes back. It's not true, uh-huh. but it never comes back. That's a thing, yeah. Yeah. So Tranio assumes his master's identity. This will be important later. Yeah, but only in and... Act 4. Yeah, only in Act 4, and then after that, not really. But, like, I mean, this play barely has a plot, is the thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it has um, one, but then it has a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a play so about that, nothing. That's an insult to, like, Seinfeld. <laughs> that's true. That is very true. I mean, the thing about Seinfeld is it wasn't a show about nothing, but... Uh, I know, I know. Yeah, we're not talking um, about Seinfeld. Yeah. I, I wish we were. I hate this play. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we're doing it now. Uh, I don't know. Okay. And Christopher Sly falls asleep. He's fallen asleep. And that's the last we see of him. So you don't have to think about him again. I mean, you won't. But I I will tell you everything you ever wanted to know about the drunken (laughs) tinker Christopher Sly. About the life and times of Christopher Sly. Yes. Who uh, says in Shakespeare's text that his family came over with Richard the Conqueror. Yes. uh, Which would have been funny then. 
uh, but now requires you to have a good knowledge of English history to even get a chuckle. Yeah. Uh, I think it's funny, uh, but haha, the poor not knowing history. Hey. Got um. Okay, one, two. Um, Petruchio's here. Yes. He's like our main character. I fucking hate him. Yeah, Petruchio's a piece of shit. Uh, we get. I don't care about him. your interpretations of this play. Petruchio is a piece of shit. Yeah, I agree. Uh, even when he's handsome Douglas Fairbanks, as was in the production you watched. Yes. Which we should talk about, but let's do that after we've summarized the plot. Yes, I agree. Uh, we get introduced to him beating his servant for no good reason. Yep. There's a lot of servant, uh, master on servant violence in this play. Oh yeah, and um, most of it from Petruchio. Most of it from Petruchio. And of course, this is a world in which service is a universal fact of life. And if you are a servant who is mistreated by your master, do you have much recourse? No! No, not really! None! Absolutely not. The world because of this your play. servant is your legal guardian. Yeah, it's great. Or, or your uh, master anyway. is your legal guardian. Yeah, it Would sucks. be funny if it were the other way around, but no. I mean, that's what you do on Twelfth Night, right? Anyway. <laughs> yeah. You like That's another place. I don't like that one either. No. It's a controversial opinion. Sooner or later, though, we will do it. Oh, I know, I know. Um, Hortensio's here. He's like, hey, Petruchio, my abusive friend. Uh, your dad just died, so you probably need some more money, right? Your father, his father, by the way, was named Antonio. As we go through the canon, there were a lot of people named Antonio. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. Shakespeare just likes the name. Yeah. Anyway, Hortensio's like, hey, there's this rich woman in Padua who you could, like, totally marry. She's kind of the worst, but, like, you could marry yeah, her. And her name is Katharina. And then we get the first of my drops for this episode. Which is what Petruchio says in response. Oh, good. If thou knowest one rich enough to be Petruchio's wife, was she as foul as Florencio, as old as Sybil, as shrewd and cursed as Socrates and Tibbe, or as rough as a swelling Adriatic sea? I have come to wed in Padua. Wealthily. And if wealthily, then happily. Yeah, so the thing in this play, or this, this I mean, film version... Douglas, Fairbank, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was not a great Shakespearean, but I appreciate the vibe of that. And the whip crack feels right yeah, to me. Yeah, uh, one of the things in this film is that both uh, Douglas Fairbanks as Petruchio and Mary Pickford as Kate are constantly carrying whips around. Kinky. Yeah. I mean, Their if they're into that, I'm not going to shame them. I mean, it's funny, because their marriage was breaking up at the time, so I'm wondering if this was... I'm wondering if this was, like, what... Like, like they ran UA, right? So, like, I'm just wondering yeah. if everyone had to go along with Doug and Mary's attempts to save their marriage. <laughs> uh, like, in a public arena. Oh, that's meta. Uh, it's very meta. Yeah. Um, shout out to United Artists. Very cool. Uh, yeah. Fun, fun story. Shame about, about Heaven's them. Gate. Yeah, that was unfortunate. MGM is still around, though. You could watch the new James Bond film, or don't. Yeah. But you could. Anyway, um, Lucentio's here again, and he's like, hey, I'm a tutor named Cambio, which means change in Italian. Yeah, that, I get caught it? that. That's not a get name. Get it? Because I've... Get it? Because I've changed my identity? Wink. Oh, this is um, Lucentio, played by Tranio, his yeah. servant. Uh, he's going to be a suitor for... Um, Bianca, and they're like, "Great, um, cool, yeah, cool, cool stuff." Cool beans. Uh, oh, and I will say by the way. Oh, 
uh, in Ashru, there is, as I said, a third daughter. There is Kate uh, as the cursed shrew. There is Philema, who is the equivalent of Bianca. Okay. And there is a third daughter named Amelia, who is the love of Polydor. And the equivalent of Petruchio wait, is a wait, fellow wait, named... Wait, 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 I only just caught this, but Polydor is in the record company? <laughs> yes, absolutely. They knew about it. Okay, yeah, that's insane. <laughs> it's spelled with a. It's spelled with an I, not a Y. Okay. But, yeah. Um, for and the equivalent of Petruchio is a man named Ferrando, which is also not a Greek name. Very much not. No. Um, I don't know. Uh, that's that's. I feel it. like there was a lower level of trying with the names in that one than there was in Shakespeare's version. I'm gonna usually Shakespeare doesn't try very hard, but I have to agree. <laughs> um. Oh boy, we're done with Act One. Yeah. Wow, look at how fast we're going. Look at us. Yeah, High five. Um, act two, scene one. Kate versus Bianca. Kate is a really horrible sister, actually. Don't at me. But, like, women do not support women in this play. Again with the Bechdel test. For real. Kate wants to know who Bianca likes the most of her suitors, which is, again, the old fool Hortense... The, excuse me, the old fool Gremio and the young fool Hortensio. So naturally, she's like, yeah, I don't really care for either of them, but, like, if you're interested, I can put in a good word. And Katarina's <laughs> like, how dare you? I will kill you. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and in, I don't... We should I should mention that uh, in the, the, the film, the 1929 film starring Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, because Mary Pickford was the top-billed star of the movie... Uh, Kate shows up already in the first scene, uh, and the way she shows up is in... She actually is, she is in, uh, to be fair, she is in 1-2, or 1-1. One, one. Um, she's just not there for very long, and then she stomps back in the house. Right, But, like, yeah. it's still Mary Pickford doing this because she's Mary Pickford. Yeah, uh, and, like, the way we're introduced to her is... Hortensia and Grammio are call, coming to call, and, uh... Or, no, Hortensio is visiting Bianca, and after, uh... Yeah, that's an invented after, scene, after, but, yeah, like, it's fine. absolutely, yeah. Uh, the, the, it's not a very faithful adaptation in general. And uh, when, when Baptista catches them and sends Hortensio away, we then get uh, a slapstick scene where some servants roll down the stairs to Kate's room as she throws pieces of furniture at them. Lovely. Um, Charming. Yeah. And uh, the other thing about Kate in that movie is that uh, every single one of the characters is dressed in some form of period or quote-unquote period costume, except Mary Pickford, who's just dressed as Mary Pickford. Good for her! Yeah, honestly. Uh, actually, that's not right. That's not true, because in, act in, in the, the final scenes of the movie, what would be Act 5 in the play, she does change to period costume, so that's... Really? That's probably wow, significant. Impressive. Yeah. Uh, in in Act Two scene we in Act Two scene one we learn that unmarried women lead apes in hell in a dance. That's weird. <laughs> I, like that did, that is an early modern belief. It's just weird. I don't have anything else to say about it. No. History is strange. It sure is. And then I, my notes say the gang shows up at Baptista's house. Yep. Uh, so Petruchio... <laughs> the gang uh, tame the shrew. Pretty much. Uh, Petruchio requests to... 
I hate this. <laughs> Petruchio's like, hey, Baptista, I'm going to woo your daughter. And he's like, are you rich? Yeah, fairly. Okay, great. <laughs> I've heard of your father, so this is okay with me. Yeah. Uh, and and then, this, the, this is where we get back to that thing about marriage being a transaction between the families, right? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of that in this scene. I really hate it. Oh, yeah. Uh, the tutors um, in, uh, introduce themselves. So Hortensio has now disguised himself as the music tutor, Licio. And Lucentio is there as a Latin tutor, uh, as Cambio, as I discussed a little bit before. Yes. Uh, oh, I love this. Petruchio negotiates the dowry for the marriage before he even meets uh, Kate. Yep. He even meets her? Yep. Good fucking God. Pardon Which my Italian. raises some questions about his motivations. Yeah, almost. I think, yeah. Uh, there's a very funny bit, haha funny, where Hortensio, as the music tutor, uh, gets his lute broken over his head. Yes. Uh, I'm sure they had some fun with that in the Mary Pickford. Because she's a Fairbanks one. Ho, 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 ho. Um, yeah, yeah. Mary Pickford plays a- the role intensely violently in general. Uh, in A Shrew, in the equivalent scene, which is not chronologically quite in the same order, uh, we get to see the music lesson. It's not as good as you would hope, no. but like it's cute. In the text, it's off stage. You like hear it, and then yeah. you go hear a lot of things Wah! are on display. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's kind of lazy. Don't at me. Which we'll get to I in Act Three. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. There's this Katarina Petruchio wooing scene. Some people are like, "Oh wow, look at how quickly they pick up on each other's stuff." Yeah, it, is, it does oh. have kind of a bogey and Bacall vibe to it. It's very that, isn't Except, it? N- yeah, not as good. Mm-hmm. Like, she can... I mean, like, uh, uh, on a wit- wittiness level, like, she is absolutely Petruchio's equal, but that doesn't matter because he can just buy her. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, band- like, the, the ending of this scene is that... Um, or maybe this is the next scene, I don't know. I think the, Go on. I think the text I read was only un- divided into acts. But, oh, that's um, fine. Yeah, so after they've had their battle of wits, Baptista shows up again, and Petruchio tells him that they love each other and they intend to get married. Uh, yeah. And Kate tries to argue against it, but... And, and they just shut her down. Yeah, what Petruchio says is that, he, no, no, she actually loves me, she's just pretending to hate me. Because yeah, re- we've because agreed reasons. on this. We've agreed on this, yeah. and, and I... I I feel fairly sure no one buys this, but they don't stop no. it. I mean, Baptista doesn't really care, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, there's some famous stuff in here. There's all the stuff about, like, uh, you know, uh, they trade places of being an imagery, a wasp with a sting, or having a tongue with a sting, and a tongue and a tail. Um, the sexual innuendos of that seem fairly obvious to me. Uh-huh. Um... There's a bit where he's uh, Petruchio tries to s- steer the conversation towards sexuality. She tries to um, steer it back towards wit and the spoken word, and then he says, "Ha ha ha, my tongue in your tail." Yeah, because he so is, he's he has got the Sigma grind set. Dis- dis- <laughs> disregard women, acquire dowry. Pretty much, uh, he says the charming line, "Will you nil you? I will marry you." Wow. Mm-hmm. Ladies, we, we sure love it. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, like like Max said, Bianca comes back in the room, and uh, but, um, the, the, the most fucked up thing about this scene is she hits him. Uh, he never touches her. 
textually. There's no, there's no, yep. in the staging, uh, he can absolutely hit her as much as he wants. They can have a whole fucking fist fight. Uh, that's how Burton and Taylor did it. Because they were method acting. Yeah, that's the other, that, uh, the other big film adaptation, we should I mean, say. I mean, they were method acting that play their whole lives. <laughs> like, like just, their whole marriage, at least. Which, but, like, which just wasn't that long, scene. yeah. I mean, they did it, like, two or three times, didn't they? Anyway. Like, yeah, they got yeah, remarried. Yeah, yeah. It's this wild. Is, this is a, uh, a, 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 seems to be a big one for big Hollywood couples about to divorce. <laughs> I wonder why. Wrong. You're not wrong. Um, so yeah, in case anyway. anyone's confused, the the two big Hollywood filmatizations of this play are the 1929 one with Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, which I have watched and I'm talking about. Uh, and then there was one in 1967 with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. And then there's one in 1999 called 10 Things I Hate About You. With oh, Tony yeah, Styles. yeah, yeah. We'll get to that one. I was thinking um, after we've done that the one, plot actually, summary, we that do... That movie, that's fair. That movie actually fucking slaps. It's good. It's the only good thing to come out of this plot, in my opinion. Anyway, we'll Patricio. Anyway, Patricio's like, yeah, we're totally engaged. Uh, don't listen to anything she says. She's a woman. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then Gremio and Tranio as Lucentio are literally bidding for Bianca's hand. Yep. They're like, well, I don't know. Well, you know, I have three hundred Argosies, which are like merchant ships. Yep. That you like. Um, you know, go sailing with. Um, eventually, they'll be part of the slave trade, you know. Um, it's lovely. Lovely yeah. stuff. Thanks, early modern period. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that they didn't just go into how many slaves they owned. Actually, uh, in Ashru... Um, oh, boy, where, I walked into that one. In uh, Yeah, there's a bit where uh, Aurelius tells um, his beloved Philema, who is the Bianca equivalent, as I mentioned... That he has millions of laboring moors yep. mining in there Asia. We go. But like it's in Asia and they're mining, which make which like I mean, the early moderns had no real conception of what anyone early modern Europeans, let's be clear, had no real conception of what anyone who didn't look exactly like them was. Um, nope. which is why you get phrases like Kit Marlowe's uh, Kit Marlowe describes someone as Native Americans as and I quote Indian Moors which makes me want to die <laughs> yeah I don't blame you um, but in this they talk about um, mining Moors in Asia and like yeah you know in, in the early modern period you have really horrific mines in uh New Spain, but that's not Asia. I did find out somewhat recently that the word more is also the German equivalent of the N-word. Oh, lovely. So, well, uh, we'll get censored in Germany. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, they so also we can make all that, the Nazi references we want now. Is, oh, by the way, uh, the early moderns also thought that Jews, Jewish men menstruated. So, like, I don't... Interesting! Yeah, I, I, I love and um, absolutely despise this period of history. What the anyway, fuck? Hey, we're done with Act 2. We're done with Act 2. Oh, my. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 3-1 uh, is funny. There, it, It's just a Tudor scene uh, with Hortensio and Lucentio. So there's, like, no... Well, every scene misogyny. in this play is a Tudor scene. Ha, fuck you. Um, I will never not make that joke. Uh, but, like, you know, there's a cute little bit where Lucentio is, like, translated... Like, has Bianca translate Latin. And he's really, like, hey... Basically, he's like, translate this Latin 
because what it means is, come on, little mama, let me whisper in your ear. <laughs> like, that's basically what it is. It's cute. Like, like it's not good, but, like, by the standards of this play, it's really cute. Yeah, I mean, um, it's not, uh, yeah. It's, it's not, not It's not what's Hor- going to happen in Act 4, let's say that. Yeah. Uh, Hortensio talks about fingering for a little bit, which I think is funny. Yep. <laughs> and then Hortensio's like, hmm, this tutor seems to be suspiciously into this young lady. That's not good. And that's the end of this scene. 3-1 is boring. Yeah. 3-2 is the wedding scene. Do you yes! have thoughts about the wedding scene? Oh my god. I mean, we the wedding scene the wedding. is one of the few things in this play that I actually found funny. Uh, and that's really? Dis- and that's disturbing because it's also very, very bad. Explain. Well, basically what happens in the wedding scene is um, <clears throat> Petruchio seems determined to be as much of an asshole as he can. Yes. At every turn. So initially he doesn't show up. And... Um, Bo- he, makes, he makes Katarina wait and she's just in tears. She's distraught. It's really unpleasant. Yeah. Um, and th- to be clear, that's not the thing I found funny. The thing I found funny is when he does show up, um, and Douglas Fairbanks does this very well, uh, he is extremely oddly dressed. Yeah, and uh, he has a really shitty horse, which we never see. We do see it in the movie. Can't... Okay, well, we don't see it in the text because no. horses can't appear on the early modern stage, no, as you may no, recall. No, no, no. There are, as we established what, during our discussion of Macbeth, there are already 16 people sitting on that stage. Yeah, exactly. If you bring a horse on uh, there, it it's would, going it to would, collapse. It would cave in. Yeah. Um, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. is indeed wearing a boot on his head. Yes, and he is. I approve. And I do like odd that. breeches and odd shoes and a cape that he's only wearing over one shoulder. It's fantastic. Uh, in A Shrew, he is specified as wearing a red cap which apparently is a symbol of servileness. That's yeah, weird. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the Phrygian cap. Yeah, oh, I guess it is, isn't it? Which, yeah, for those of uh, our viewers was... who don't know what a Phrygian cap is, that's a thing from... I'm not sure if it was... How much of a thing it ever was, or if it was only in, like, ancient mythology that slaves wore it. Yeah. And it's... Because people in the Enlightenment were obsessed with classical history... And French revolutionaries adopted it as a symbol of liberation. And so the personification of France, Marianne, yeah, wears it. Yeah, depicted wearing your Phrygian cap, yeah. It's cool. Um, I was just, honestly, I was only really interested by that because I thought it was kind of interesting to think about what an early modern Petruchio would have worn for this scene. Purely for my edification. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, there is there is some description of his outfit. Isn't oh that? no, it's it's in pretty deep. It's in pretty good detail. But I I just thought it was interesting to have it described not uh, for the audience but for the um you know whoever runs the tiring house right backstage. Right, yeah. Uh, I just thought that was interesting from a historical point of view. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he's he's dressed madly. Yeah. Ooh. And um... and they're like and they're like, please, can we get you another outfit? And he's like. Thanks, no. Specifically what he says is, she's marrying me, not my clothes. Wow, good guy Petruchio. Yep. (laughs) The wedding occurs offstage, in the text. Not in the film. Mary, in this film, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks wanted to do it. Yes, Uh, and Douglas Fairbanks is pictured very loudly biting on an apple. (laughs) I would do that during my wedding. Yeah. 
early on, and then when uh, when the time comes to say his vows, I have the drop. Petruchio, wilt thou take Catherine here present for thy lawful wife? Aye, my God's wrong! <laughs> yeah, so he screams, in case you didn't catch it, I, by God's wounds. Which is basically Which, which saying, is a curse. Yeah, that's the, the modern equivalent to that is the priest or the rabbi or the imam or whatever says to you, do you take this woman to be your husband? And you say, fuck yeah! Yeah. Uh, and uh, in the text, the priest is so disturbed by this that he, fa- he drops his Bible and falls over. Uh, uh, we do not see any of this. Yes, this um, is described to... But honestly, good for United Artists 1929 for depicting it. Yeah. I actually appreciate that. And, That's clever. Uh, in, in the text, though not in the film, Petruchio's response to this is to punch the priest squarely in the face. <laughs> yes. Which I guess I was a it. bit much for United Artists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the League of Catholic Filmgoers or whatever probably wouldn't have liked that. Yeah, uh, It is worth mentioning that this is a pre-code movie, so there is some yes, stuff is. happening that wouldn't have under the Hays Code, but... Uh, yeah, I, wa- I watched the first five minutes and you have, like, a pretty passionate kiss between Hortensio and Bianca. Oh, yeah, and I mean, they keep doing that. Good for them. Or at least, um, uh, well... I mean, the kisses are passionate on Petruchio's part. Let's put it that way. Lovely. We do have in this scene a very charming exchange because Petruchio, in his uh, nascent efforts to gaslight Kate into being a good, docile wife, yes, uh, he makes which her we should mention the... is what this play is from here on out. Yes, it's this about is this break... is the taming. It is about breaking a woman. Yep. and rebuilding her as a perfect little meek, uh, like your wild housewife. horse, actually like a falcon. I, I know less worse. about falconry than I know about. Oh, buddy, I know a lot about Elizabethan falconry now. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you all about it. I want to not know about this, though. <laughs> anyway, oh, um, yeah. So as he's doing this, he has the charming exchange. He has a charming exchange in which he calls Katarina uh, quote his goods, uh, and then he. I'm going to switch to the first person now, right? Uh, my goods, my chattels, she is my house, my household stuff, my field, my barn, my ox, my ass, my, uh, my anything. That's nice. What a feminist, what a secretly feminist play we have here. Yeah, uh, I so, really, I'm not a fan. So what happens after the wedding is Baptista has suiting, fitting his station an enormous wedding feast planned. Uh, but Petruchio decides, actually, no, I'm gonna go home now, and I'll be taking my wife with me, if you please. Yeah, it sucks. Um, and when they do get home... And she almost breaks at that point and refuses to go with him, but doesn't. Yeah, it's real fucked. Uh, we are now at Act 4, by the way. Yay. Um, we have some silly servants who ready the meal for Petruchio and Yeah, and this is where we get to the names. Okay. Because the servants, Petruchio's servants, for some reason have names like Nathaniel and Curtis. That famous Italian name, Curtis. Uh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you not, did you not enjoy that? <laughs> that um, 
broke the immersion a that, little bit for me. Did that did that broke break your immersion? I'm so because sorry. Because the rest of this play is famously so accurate. Yeah. Um anyway, they like make a whole lot of food and then when Petruchio gets there, he uh per typical behavior for him, uh abuses his servants brutally oh, yeah. and throws away all the food. And he's like, Yeah, I guess you won't eat for your wedding night and then uh, later, one of the servants comes back and is like, ha ha, he's not, he's giving her a lecture about continency instead of um, fucking her on her wedding night. Yeah, very so, cool like, all not, around. Yeah, so like, not only does she not get to eat, uh, they're not even consummating the marriage yet. Yep. Which is wild. And then, which is kind Petruchio, of, I mean, as I understand it, there are basically two different interpretations of what Petruchio's actual motivations are. Go on. Uh, one of which is the idea that he's just after the dowry, which is the one I believe. Uh, and the other one is that he genuinely loves her, but he, he thinks she isn't submissive enough, so he decides to break her. And this kind of the other, this kind of speaks other, against that, doesn't it? Well, the other slightly more um, lenient reading is that she recognizes that she can't um, live a fulfilling life in their uh, societal order without learning a little bit about what it means to play act at being a deferent wife and like sure buddy uh yeah this feels like someone who has not read or seen the play making that argument i mean lots of people who have read and seen the play many times have made this but i don't like it no uh it's it's a yikes and we have a, a really great speech where he says that uh she is his falcon he will there we go like yeah now you may have wondered you may have woken up in a hot sweat. How does one tame an Elizabethan falcon? Well, I'll tell you. Oh, boy. You catch, Here we go. You, ca you catch a wild bird, preferably a female one, yep. because apparently they're better, and then you make them unable to sleep. Uh, in some periods, this meant sewing their eyelids shut so they couldn't sleep, oh, and they cool. didn't know what time of day it was. Uh, more humane periods would just hood them, and, and falconers still do that today, actually. Yeah. Um, and then you would keep them from eating, um, so they would become utterly dependent on you for any food. And then you would train them to become utterly dependent on you by tying them to you, and you would let them fly, and then you'd pull them back and do that over and over again. Uh, it's really fucked up. Yeah. And as we shall see in the next act, uh, that's basically kind that's of step That's basically beat step. for beat what he does to Captain Exactly. Bates. Like, beat for beat, yep. he does this. Yep. And then and, the uh, worst part of this is he asks the audience, if you know a better way to tame a shrew, tell me. And you can't answer. I mean, you could, but it won't change what happens in the play. I mean, so, I would disagree with the premise personally, but... <laughs> I would. I mean, I wouldn't have attended. Hashtag real male feminist hours. Wow, thank you, Max. Very cool. <laughs> um, but, right, like, you become complicit in what he's doing now because he asked you if you could give him a better way of doing this. And, like, you could, but you won't change what's happening. So you didn't give him an alternative. So this must be the only way. Starting to think we should put a content warning on this episode. Yeah, we probably should have done that earlier. I'll put it in the show notes. Shoot. Yeah. Oh, hey, we're back to the subplot. Yay! Thank God. Oh boy, yes. This is when we get the imposter oh, yeah. stuff. Oh uh, yeah. Well, not quite yet. Um, Hortensio's like, I'm out. 
because uh, Bianca is clearly a no-good slut who's into some, you know, low-life tutor. So I'm going to marry a previously unmentioned widow, yeah. and then I'm going to learn how to tame a woman from Petruchio. Oh, boy! And, th- and then... Masterclass time! Uh, yeah, and then Bianca and Lucentio are like, hooray! Oh, but now... Lucentio needs a fake father to make this marriage happen. So they find a guy called the Pedant, yep. who's just like around, and they're like, "Hey, if you don't impersonate my father, you will die." It may—it doesn't make sense in context, actually. And then the Pedant responds, "Well, actually, that doesn't make a lot of sense, <laughs> as I read where we currently are." No, he doesn't do that. I wish he did. Uh, oh yeah. Okay, four three. Um, Petruchio starves her. The servants won't feed her. Yep. Katarina, I mean. Yep. Uh, they won't buy her new clothes. Um, he makes, quote-unquote, a puppet of her. It's quite unpleasant. Yep. Uh, so they decide... So Petruco decides that they will go underdressed and underfed back to their... Uh, back to her father, his father-in-law's house. And Hortensio, who by now is at the taming school, is like, Wow, what's Petruchio going to do next? Command the sun? Catch catch on next week. Same time, same channel. Yeah. Um, I don't know. The pedant, 4-4, the pedant's like, Hey, I'm totally this guy's dad. He's totally the guy he's pretending to be. Will you, like, let them, let him marry uh, your daughter? Like, we're rich. And Baptista's like, Yeah, that's great. And that's the end of the scene. Um... <laughs> uh, four five is audio medium. I just made thumbs up. Uh, four five is the one where Petruchio does in fact command the sun. Yep. Uh, I hate it. Oh yeah. Um, and she's like, I don't know. Either she's she's bought into it now, or she she's into it. I don't know. And she says, uh, with regard to the time of day, quote, what you will have it named, even that it is, and so it shall be so for Katarina. Mm-hmm. Isn't that nice? He's broken her. Yep. And this is anyway. when uh, Petruchio tells her that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Yeah, it's basically that. I, I if fucking you want hate a pic- this. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a shrewman face forever. <laughs> uh, and the boot is on your head. <laughs> yes, Because you're exactly. wearing it as a hat. You're doing, uh, you're doing all of this mid-cartwheel, yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, so you may remember that, like, Lucentio has a dad. He's here yeah, now. Yeah, Vincentio. For no apparent reason. Uh, it's not that important. And there's a bit where Petruchio gaslights Kate into calling uh, the wizened old man Vincentio the kind of role that, according to tradition, Shakespeare himself would have played. Uh, he's like, call that man a young, beautiful virgin. And she does. <laughs> yeah, call like, the it's author literally, of this play. I mean, I'm, I don't think there's a tradition that William Shakespeare played Vincentio, but he easily could have. Yeah. Um, he was actually pretty young at this point, so maybe he would have played a servant. Yeah, I mean, he uh, would have been, what, either way. in his 30s? Uh, 64, he would have been like 30, like 28, 30, okay, 32. Yeah. Um... Okay, he'd probably probably be like Curtis or something. (laughs) The famous Italian Curtis. Getting beaten by Petruchio. That was Shakespeare's love and love. Yeah, Richard Burbage uh, is just beating you up for the entertainment of thousands. (laughs) I mean, I can see some playwrights 
deliberately putting themselves in roles like that. I'm not sure if Shakespeare was that kind of playwright. No, I think he took... I think he realized that that would have been bad. I hope, anyway. Mm. Um, anyway, that's the end of that scene. Oh boy, we're at Act 5. Uh, yes. Please, end, end as soon as possible, play. Um, oh, far. there's a bit in... By the way, in A Shrew, um, there's a kind of amusing scene where Polydor and Emilia and Aurelius and uh, Philema have a classical illusion off to prove which woman, which sister loves their husband more. This is Offenbach at this point. It is kind of Offenbach. I mean, what it really is is just like peak Elizabethan England. Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually enjoy it. It's sort of funny. I wish it were in a different play. Mm -hmm. Um, So actually, have we missed out on any sly from that play? Uh, There's a bit where we see their their wedding is about to happen. And um, Sly's like, hey, this is boring. I want to see the servant. I want to see the clowns. And the lord who has been there oh, the whole time. Oh, doing some is, social critique. Yeah. Um, send, actually, it's uh, Stephen Sondheim, send in the clowns. Anyway. Um, Woke unnamed author. For real. Uh, anyway. And, and the lord who all this time has pretending to be a servant named Syme. Because this was apparently Syme. a common nickname. Yeah, apparently that's a common nickname for Simon in the early modern period. Don't ask. Don't ask. I'm just thinking of 1984 again now. No, like, like, he, like the Lord pretends to be named Simon, and Christopher Sly's like Simon, Simon. That's what Simeon or, or, or Simon. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. He like George W. Bushes him. Like, he picks <laughs> a nickname. Calls him Tart Blossom. Yeah, it, I feel like it's the early modern equivalent of that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, also, side note, I am, I am. In, probably in a minority on this, but George W. Bush's nicknames were better than Trump's nicknames. Don't at me. I actually don't think I agree, and I hate both of those men with a passion. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, For sure, Ryan yeah. Ted Cruz is objectively sort of funny. Yeah, I mean, the individual ones, some of the individual ones are very good. The thing is, they all follow the exact same format. Oh, you're not wrong. And then, like, it's by just adjective name. And by, like, 2019, 2020, they were just bad. Yeah. Like, I, what did he call Pete? I don't even remember. Like, it didn't make sense. It wasn't good. Uh, no. Sleepy Joe Biden? No, thanks. Anyway, um, we might I will say this. Mini Mike was a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My grandfather, in one of the last things he did before he passed away, uh, supported Mike Bloomberg. Oh, no. Uh, old Jew- Old, well-off Jews gotta stick together, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... Uh, that's the, who the, my the global Bloomberg Jewish conspiracy for. is real, but only in American Samoa. Absolutely. Um, I don't know. Okay, we're at 5-1, and Vincentio's in Padua now, and he's like, Oh my god, someone is pretending to beat me. Identity theft. Someone is pretending to be my son. Oh my god, my, my trusty servant Tranio has killed um, my son and is pretending to be him. And, Interesting. Um, And Tranio commits to the bit, to his credit, and is like, you are a madman, we will send you to jail. Uh, And here we get the biggest bit of uh, Christopher Sly intrusion into the play, Mm -hmm. where he's like, hey, whoa, 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 sending to prison? No, that's not happening in my comedy. Because he, like, doesn't pronounce comedy right. (laughs) 
Uh, like consistently, that's a thing he doesn't do. I don't know. If, I don't remember if he does it here, but like he does it generally. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, no sending to prison. And the Lord is like, it's okay. It's it's gonna end. like we're in like the final ten minutes of the play. Don't worry, it's gonna be fine. I've seen. I saw. I saw like pictures of a production which kept in the um, interlude stuff from Ashru, and they had the actor playing Sly like, just like just stop the production for like a full minute and a half, <laughs> like just in. And just a fury, which I really like. I do quite I mean, like that. I mean, it is interesting, the framing device. I just think it's weird the way Shakespeare does it. Yes, yeah, Shakespeare didn't commit, and yeah. the author of A Shrew did commit, and they deserve credit for that, I yeah. think? Anyway, Lucentio's like, oh, actually, the identity theft was my idea. Don't worry, it doesn't really threaten our pre-existing social hierarchies. Ha <laughs> ha. He says, Bianca's love made me exchange my state with Tranio. And this satisfies everyone. And so he looks directly into the camera and says, by the way, this isn't satire. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Um, And then everyone goes into Lucentio's wedding feast. And this is the last scene. Yes. Um, Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Uh, So now so we meet the widow and she's like, hey, Petruchio, damn. You must have a really rough situation with your wife who probably hates you. And when you say that I'm mean to my husband, that's just you projecting. And he's like, oh, yeah, bet. Literally. Yes. He says, and let's is... eat. Do you have an audio drop? I was going to read it, but if you have an well, audio not drop. this bit. No. Okay. I do Petruchio's a bit like, later on. Petruchio's like, oh, Baptista's like, oh, in good sadness, son, Petruchio, I think thou hast the very true of all. The thing is, this stuff isn't in the film, so I couldn't take a drop of it. Huh. Because interesting. the, char- the character of this. Lucentio is cut from the film. Oh, and Bianca well, only that's... shows up at the very beginning. So. Oh, well, that's why it's one hour So the long. entire subplot, yeah. Right, that yeah. makes sense. Anyway, Petruchio's like, let's each one send unto his wife, and he whose wife is most obedient to come at first and he doth send for her shall win the wager we, which we, w- we will propose because they're betting money on their wives to see who comes first, like a falcon. Yeah. Now, to be fair, they're being nice. They're betting more on their wives than they would on a hawk or a hound. Hey. Feminism! Um, so, we anyway. have, so we have finally established, conclusively and for all time, how much a woman's life is worth. Which is <laughs> yeah, slightly basically. more than a hawk and basically the same as a falcon. To be fair, more than both of those. But yeah, it's the it's rough. Uh, so Hortensio's wife doesn't come. Uh, Bianca doesn't come, which is cool because like maybe she was faking all along. I don't know. Feminism. Feminism. Uh, but then Katarina comes and she's like, "Yes, what is it, my lord?" Because she's like a broken human being. Now. Yeah. Um. And then she returns with the other women, and then she gives a very famous speech about uh, how women suck and men are great. Um, and yeah, she... and that's the part I have the drop for. Great, let's listen. Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign. Oh, I'm ashamed. That women are so simple to offer war where they should kneel for peace or seek for rule, supremacy, and sway where they are bound to serve, love, and obey. Yeah, and in 
this particular production, we should mention that after Mary Pickford says this, she turns to the camera and winks. It, that is actually, that is by far, that and um, the apocryphal credit at the beginning, which says additional dialogue by uh, with William Shakespeare are the most famous things about this production. Mm-hmm. Um, well, her little wink. I love it. I don't think it's textually supported, no. but I love it. That's very cute. Good for Mary Pickford. Yeah. Uh, does she, like, run off after she does all this? She does not. Elizabeth Taylor does. Because... Okay. Uh, the way Douglas Fairbanks responds to this is he says... <laughs> There's a wench. Come on and kiss me, Kate. And then they kiss. Hooray. And very film, I assume. Lovely. Um... um. The, uh, the version of this speech from Ashrew is really weird uh, because rather than these sort of like polemical arguments about how the uh, marriage is um, the, the state in microcosm with the husband as the king, yeah. and that's why the wife as the subject should be uh, subservient, which is not uncommon political mm-hmm. social thought for the 1590s, but increasingly... Like, there would have been people here who are like, yeah, women are inferior, but, like, come on, that's a little much. Which is a yikes take still, but they would have found this primitive. Mm-hmm. But the uh, version of this text in Ashru is really weird because uh, it's not politics it draws on, it's religion. I'm going to quote a little bit. Uh, this is Katarina speaking. Old Adam, uh, from his side asleep, a rib was taken, of which the Lord did make the woe of man. So turned by Adam then, woe man, for that by her came sin to us. Now, that is not supported by the book of Genesis. The pun in Genesis is on man, ish, becoming woman, isha, which are not etymologically related words in Hebrew, but, like, it's fine. We don't need to talk about that. Anyway, this is fucking wild. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate it. <laughs> anyway, I, I mean, also this is love where I point idea. out that uh, the whole analog of um, man being the head of woman as God is the head of the church is from the book of Ephesians. Yeah. So that fuck, is in the I, New I really, Testament. I really hate St. Paul. Uh, yeah. personally, I, uh, uh, not a fan. Um, find it, it hard to disagree with you. Uh, one of the worst Jewish people to ever live. Don't at me. Um, that's a spicy anyway, take. I hope the trad kids just, don't find this podcast. I mean, I will fight them. <laughs> um, I'll let you have the Twitter account if that happens. Good. Thank you. I just like the logic of. It, it, it feels very like Turning Point 1592. <laughs> Dear liberals. Turning if, Point uh, England. Turning uh, Point with an E at the yes. end of both words. Dear dear Puritans, if women have rights, why does woman sound like woe of man? Sincerely, Charles Kirkus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Carlonio anyway, Kirk. There we go. <laughs> uh, I actually, I, amusingly, Kirk uh, suggests that Charlie Kirk's family are Scots. Yep. Um, and so they would probably have had a more progressive view of women than this play presents. <laughs> um, anyway. Okay, unless, of course, it comes to their monstrous regiment. Yeah, but I mean, even Calvin thought that was dumb by the end of his life. Mm. I, I think. Anyway. 
So he says, Kiss Me Kate. That's where the musical title comes from. Everyone applauds. Uh, Hortensio and Lucentio are shocked at how well Petruchio was able to tame a cursed shrew. Uh, Interestingly, in A Shrew, um, Amelia, that is the equivalent of Bianca, is like, Jesus Christ, what happened? She, um, She herself, in defense of her own newfound assertive behavior, uh, says that it's better to be a shrew than it is to be a sheep. Wake up, sheeple. Um, anyway, that's the end of Shakespeare's play. Yep. But a shrew has an epilogue. Oh, boy. Where... Do we get back uh, to Sly now? Yes, we do. After his, um, you know, complaint that everyone's going to get sent to prison, he has fallen asleep or something. Okay. And... Uh, in must be fun text, to be an actor when the one person in your audience falls asleep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, that would suck. I mean, if I'm playing Christopher Sly, I am snoring vigorously throughout this final scene. <laughs> <laughs> like just trying to outshout it with snoring. <sighs> yeah. yeah, it would be. It would honestly be a lot of fun. Um. I, 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 I do kind of like the idea of a reading that really goes into the play within a play thing. You have the actress playing Katarina, reading her lines of, like, women are the worst. And she's like, what? What am I reading? Don't... Come on! I think that would be funny. Again, yeah. not textually supported. Anyway, so the Lord and his retainers dump Sly back on the ground where they found him. Asleep in a puddle of his own filth, basically. And the tapster from the beginning, in Shakespeare's text, it's um, an ale, uh, a female alekeeper, which is an interesting dichotomy, but not really. Which that was much a to say thing at it. the time. Oh, of course, it, it's always been a thing. Yeah. Um. Anyway, the tapster or or the um the female publican, if you prefer, uh, wakes up Sly, and is like, Jesus Christ, did you sleep on the ground? And he's like, Ugh, I had such a good dream. Uh, quote, Thou hast waked me out of the best dream that ever I had in my life, but all to my wife presently, and tame her too if she anger me. Oh no! It's spreading! <laughs> this is just like the end of Little Shop of Horrors! <laughs> See, that is a reading. But the other reading, because uh, there's a line, and I don't have it quoted because it's not that interesting, where the tapster, or again, the female publican, if you prefer, is like, yeah, I'm going to follow you and talk you down. Um, mm. So the implication is either this is a lesson to tame your wife. All of us can learn from this. Or it's only an idiot like Christopher Sly would take this seriously. And anyone even remotely sober ah, like yes. the tapster would acknowledge this to be ridiculous. Right, yeah, because my immediate follow-up question, now that we have finished the plot summary, uh, is to what extent do you think Shakespeare agreed with Petruchio? Uh, honestly, my theory is Shakespeare was writing for money, and he didn't really care. Okay. I, I tend to, I mean, I, I tend to think of early modern writers as kind of like debate kids, because they were, they all were, uh, right? Ah, yeah, 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 so someone paid Shakespeare to... To say that a woman well, needs to even, be broken like a falcon. It's not even that. It's just like, oh, hey, people are into this idea right now. There's a popular uh, text about the, the taming a shrew right now. I should get in on this. I'll write a play. Hopefully no one 500 years from now finds it horrifically sexist. Oh, boy. Um, well. I, I, but the, 
Uh, that's honestly my take. I mean, in later texts, Shakespeare has much more interesting and complicated female characters than this who are not tamed and do not need to be tamed, yeah. even if they exist in a patriarchal context. So I maybe in 1592 Shakespeare believed in this, but honestly, I think even in the early plays you have women... Um, given a lot more agency than this. You have this wonder in the Henry Sixes, you have the wonderful Queen Margaret, who, uh, I mean, more or less historically, was by far the defining uh, force of the Lancastrian faction during the Wars of the Roses. Because Henry VI was charitably not well. Mm -hmm. So, like, I honestly, I, I, I mean, maybe this is me trying to be. Yeah, know, and I mean, there's a lot credit. to be said about the gender politics of Lady Macbeth. But even yeah. she doesn't... Like, the idea that she needs to be taken down a peg doesn't really enter into that play. I mean, really, the politics with Lady Macbeth, to me, I mean, in, in a brief summary, are basically that um, Macbeth needs to be taken up a peg because if he isn't, he's m less masculine than his own wife. And yeah. that's problematic. But in a different yeah, way Yeah, in a different way. This. Yeah. He is, yeah. There's less uh, abuse going on in that play. Yeah, uh, this play because, like, is, this is really awful. This is basically just a textbook abuse. case from beginning to end of domestic psychological abuse. Yes, but with more falconry. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess you have it. to find your metaphor somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in some ways, this could be like a sort of... If, if it were written in a different time and also played very differently, a story with this basic premise could be, like, a modernist social problem play about this. Yeah, I wouldn't want to watch it. Except that, yeah, as we mentioned, um, Petruchio is not unambiguously the villain of this play. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. I talked a little bit about this in Macbeth when I was going on about things that didn't need to be discussed. There was a sequel to this play, Written by that famous podcasting subject, things that didn't be didn't need to be discussed. <laughs> yes, um, there's a sequel to this play called "The Woman's Prize" or "The Tamer Tamed," um, in which Katerina has died off stage, and uh, Petruchio's second wife Maria proceeds to tame him, okay. and it's great, actually. Yeah, because I read at some point while doing quote-unquote research for this episode, uh, <laughs> I read a take that uh, in taming Katerina, Petruchio basically acts the same way she acts towards other people in the beginning of the play. Yeah, people have argued that. I don't like that argument, but I, 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 I don't like her, but I hear the argument. Uh -huh. But yeah, like, you have, you have a little bit of literature from the sick... Um, and this is by the this is in the into the Jacobean period you have this literature of So um, into the seventeenth century for our Yeah, into the early seventeenth century, in which you have plays that are making fun of misogyny and making fun of people with this kind of regressive worldview. And it seems to me that there was at the very least people who could be paid anyway, <laughs> or see opportunity in writing things that contradicted this really unsettlingly grim patriarchal worldview which is good yeah which is good i agree shout out to sweatnam the woman hater i'm sorry uh or oh yeah this play one of the plays that is um 
a, a sort of a parody of misogyny in the 1610s is called Sweatnam the Woman Hater Arraigned by Women. That's incredible. Um, yeah, well, it's based because there was a pamphleteer of the time called Joseph Sweatnam who really hated women and okay. wrote a pamphlet called The Arraignment of Women, 1615. Yeah. As, or, we, as we previously of. established, of course, pamphleteers were the uh, early modern equivalent of Twitter accounts. The full title of the original pamphlet was The Arraignment of Lewd, Idle, Froward, and Unconstant woman, Women, or The Vanity of Them, Choose You Weather, with a commendation of wise, virtuous, and honest women, pleasant for married men, profitable for young men, and hurtful to none. Not sure about that last part, buddy. Pretty sure it's hurtful. <laughs> I mean, didn't, didn't he say modern... all men before? Yes. So it's hurtful to no men. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, I do love early modern titling. They had no limits. No. It's great. It's very good. Um, we were going to talk about the seminal teen film, Ten Things I Hate About yes. You. Yes, and I figure we could, because there's been a few different sort of meta-adaptations of this play. Sure. Uh, the other one, obviously, that comes to mind is the musical Kiss Me, Kate. Which I have not actually No, seen. neither have I. So let's discuss it. Oh. <laughs> uh, Kiss, Me uh, yes. Kiss Me Kate takes the whole meta level a little bit further, and uh, it's about uh, the backstage life of a musical adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew. I mean, basically it's about Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks performing The Taming of yeah, the Shrew. more or less, yeah. But they're, but they're played by Howard Keel, and I forget who it was in the film. Uh, yeah, I don't know either. It's not important. Um... There were a lot of actresses in the 1950s who charitably were not the best. I don't want to be mean. <laughs> I mean, that's why they had, they hired the same woman to sing for all of them. Really? Yeah, Marnie Nixon. Oh my god, I hate it. And she was never credited. Oh good. Yep. Oh good. So that's another bit of feminism for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, I've never seen Kiss Me, Kate. I, I doubt it's aged well. Generally speaking, um, my understanding is that Cole Porter's individual songs have, have aged a lot better than his actual plays have. Yeah, that really doesn't shock me. Uh, the only thing I do know about this show is that it's where Brush Up Your Shakespeare is from. Oh, yeah. I sang that once in, like, kindergarten, and that was fun. I like that song. Yeah. That's a bad... <laughs> Oh, and it's where another open and another show is from? That's a famous number. Yeah. So I guess that's... I mean, I don't think it has as two. many famous songs as something like Anything Goes, but... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the, other, the only other thing I know about Kiss Me, Kate, is that the secondary female lead is named Lois yes! Lane. Which I think is so funny. That's so strange. I, which is really weird, because this is um, 1948. Lois Lane does debuts in the 1930s. Yep. Uh, and I and comics were not like you know a, a, a high culture thing. They aren't well, now. Well, not comic books anyway. But, but like newspaper comic strips had a slightly higher amount of cachet. But even though even I then, mean, yeah, yeah, it's not like Dick Tracy was like high American culture. Yeah. Mind you, this is a period when high American culture is. Life magazine and the Reader's Digest. Yeah, I was, I was about to say non-existent, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, and like our yeah, it, it's it's a lot. Um, 
but I, it is funny that her name is Lois Lane. Yep. Good job. So that's our take on Kiss Me Kate. One character's which, name again, is again, neither... Which neither of us have no. seen. Maybe I'll listen to it or something. I don't know. So the other one I which you wanted won't. to talk about is, of course, the teen rom-com 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah, I honestly like this movie a lot. Um, because it isn't actually sexist anymore. Hmm. It's, it's just like, what if Katarina had a good reason to be unpleasant? And what if a young Heath Ledger um, showed her that men aren't all evil? And that's the premise of the So it film. sounds like it keeps roughly the plot of about act one of this and then just goes yes. off in some direction. Yes, I would say so. Um, oh, and Which is healthy, of... I think. I don't think you should adapt this straight into the modern era. Yes, and it, um, it makes uh, Baptista kind of the butt of the joke as opposed to like this father figure who is bizarrely never questioned. Yeah, because... No one ever... He's such a terrible person. Yeah. He's just like, oh, well, uh, money. Ho, ho, ho. And, in, and in, uh, in Ten Things I Hate About You, he's like this grieving father who lost his wife some time ago. And he's just sort of pathologically obsessed with the idea of his daughter's uh, uh, maturing, which is like much healthier and normal. And he's kind of like a silly I mean, character. it's fucked up in a more like, understandable way. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, also, young Joseph Gordon-Levitt is in this movie, oh, yeah. which is wild. And, like I said, young Heath Ledger is in this movie. And, wow, he was young <laughs> in 1999. Yeah. I can believe it. Um, uh, I like this movie. It's the best thing, in my opinion, to come out of The Taming of the Shrew. I can believe that. <laughs> Doesn't um, seem like a high bar to clear if you... No. Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of adaptations of it. It's very popular. I don't know why. No. I mean, another thing I kind of started to think about uh, looking this, looking into this is that... There was, a, there was an adaptation in 1716 called The Cobbler of Preston. Okay. Uh, set during the 1715 Jacobite Rebellion. Oh, boy! And it's... Uh, I get the sense and, there's going to be some ideology in that one. Uh, but it is where the phrase uh, death and taxes comes from. Huh. So maybe that's another legacy of the Taming of the Shrew. Anyway, continue. Yeah, so the thing I was going to mention is that it's always kind of struck me how uh, the Shakespearean tragedies tend to have survived a lot better than the Shakespearean comedies. Often. I, I don't know if that's always true. But no, I mean, there's some exceptions. But yeah, yeah so like, okay. The thing is, from the point of view of having read one of each, at this point... Uh, I'm starting to get the sense it may have been because Shakespeare was simply better at one than he was at the other. I don't know if that's true. I was about I to ask, read... do you agree with this hot take? I think we've read one really good tragedy and one really bad comedy. That's fair. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I mean, I had the notion that uh, this wasn't going to be as good as Macbeth because very few things are. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, we didn't discuss the 2003 adaptation Deliver Us from Eva, starring LL Cool J and Gabrielle Green. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, that exists. Do you want to elaborate? No, I know Except nothing about it. Except to say it. that I it stars LL it Cool J. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a uh, man famous for his good view of women. Uh, another man famous for his good view of women 
is John Wayne, whose film Macintosh, oh, right. 1963, yeah. they did is a also an adaptation of the Taming of the Shrew. Of the Shrew. Yeah where he is reunited with Maureen O'Hara, with whom he starred in The Quiet Man, which is a masterful film, but also shockingly sexist. Mm -hmm. uh, it is about funny Irish people kidnapping women. Oh, we love that. We love some funny Irish people. Yeah, it's also set, like, during Devs, Ireland, too. Um, like, in the early 20s. Okay. So it's wild. That's, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh... I think it's telling that if John Wayne liked this movie, there's something, <laughs> uh, this plot, there's something wrong with it. Yeah. I don't disagree. Um, yeah. I, I don't have a lot more to say. No. Um. Uh, I know a lot of people try to redeem this text, and good for them. I'm glad. Uh, I don't think it is redemptive. Redeemable. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, I don't like it. I think it sucks. Yep. Um, Petruchio never hits Kate physically but he just brainwashes her yeah like i said psychological abuse uh it seems to me that the only way this text is redeemable is um the christopher sly stuff and even then i don't really know what you do with it because it's so difficult to figure out what it's about anyway mm -hmm. certainly in shakespeare's text and even in the it's um, such a strange text, thing it's so strange so um, I guess that kind of yeah. summarizes this play, then. Everything is either vaguely interesting in how strange it is, or actively terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's the nicest thing I think I can say about it. So, uh, yeah. So that's fine. Yeah, I think if we want to cut back to the recurring question, do I think this deserves to be as famous as it is? Or alternatively, do I think this should be more famous? I think I can say an emphatic no to the latter question. <laughs> I yeah. think I mean I think this is one of those plays that are kind of useful to have around for people to analyze. Mhm. Mm like as a historical record of how people in the fifth, the 16th century thought. Yeah. But which we probably shouldn't be performing too much. I tend to think that Taming of the Shrew and Merchant of Venice are fit to be retired from Oh god, we're gonna have to do an episode on the Merchant of Venice eventually. Yeah, you're gonna love me talking about the Merchant of Venice. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we'll have we'll get some content out of it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I I don't like this play, uh, but if you do, that's cool. You can let us know why you like this yes, play. Yes, please uh, argue we, with us. Please give us engagement. Uh, I don't know if you'll change our minds, but yeah. I'm open so, to trying. Uh, the Twitter account for this podcast because we have one of those now. We sure do. It's at Spearcast. That's Spear spelt as in Shakespeare with an E at the end. And then cost. It's all true. All one word, all lowercase. So true. Uh, and that's where we can be found. Um, yeah. You uh, can also find... I guess you can also find us at anchor.fm slash Spearcast. Same spelling. In case you're not already there listening to this. Sure. You can do that. Yeah. If you're a cursed shrew... Oh, please let us know. I'd love to yeah, meet you. Yeah, as shrewd and cursed as Socrates Xanthippe. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a lot. Poor Xanthippe, she deserved better from historiography. Also, with Socrates, whatever, it's fine. There's discourse to be had. If you have opinions about Socrates... I know nothing about, about Socrates, Socrates so... Uh, if you have opinions about Socrates or Shakespeare... No, please or anything, don't send please the Socrates hats after us. 
<laughs> if you have an opinion on Socrates, yeah. I'm not interested. Please go bother someone else. Okay, well, I might be interested for about 10 okay, minutes. Okay, so do we actually do we want to plug where people can find us individually? So true. Uh, you can find me at, at Beata Beatrix 1, or I am now called um, uh, Beata Bea Spear, yep. because I'm into the bit. And because where can this, people find you, Matt? Yeah, and I am at Rail Tragedy. And I guarantee I will not tweet about Shakespeare. If Good I ever you. have a Shakespeare take, I will use the podcast account. So if you want to <laughs> hear about you. completely unrelated things in probably a language uh, other than may- English, you can follow me at Rail Tragedy on Twitter. Uh, I think Swedish is very funny to read. Uh, that's about it. I guess the comedy uh, value is good then. <laughs> yes. That's why we do a comedy podcast. Do we? I don't know. I don't know. I, right, think, I think my take so far is that I'm doing a comedy podcast and you're not. I'm trying. I find things funny. We should cut it off now. We absolutely should. Goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.